Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. America, we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights: life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and dynamic women invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I'm so pleased to have as my guest today playwright Edamar Moses, who received the 2018 Tony Award for Best Book of a Musical for his beautiful work on the Tony Award-winning Best Musical, The Band's Visit. His other theater work includes the plays Bach at Leipzig, The Four of Us, Completeness, and The Whistleblower, as well as the musicals Nobody Loves You and The Fortress of Solitude. He's also written for several acclaimed television series, including Boardwalk Empire and The Affair. His current project is a stage adaptation of the hit 1986 animated film An American Tale, for which he has written the book and co-written the lyrics of the new songs. Performances began yesterday, April 26th, at the Children's Theatre Company of Minneapolis, where the show will play through June 18th. This episode is made possible in part through the generous support of our Broadway Nation Patron Club members, Alejandro Membreno, Ellie Schaffer, and Judy Hucka. If you would like to help support the work of Broadway Nation, I'll have information at the end of the podcast about how you too can join the club. Here we go. Welcome, Itamar Moses, to Broadway Nation. It's such a great pleasure to have you here today to talk about the new musical adaptation of the movie An American Tale. Thank you. It is great to be here. So the story of this movie and the new musical adaptation, I'm presuming, are closely related to the themes of this podcast, which I don't know if you know, but the subtitle of the podcast is How Immigrants, Jews, Queers, and African Americans Invented the Broadway Musical. Yeah, both internally and on a meta level, it's really. Yeah, exactly. Because this period of almost unlimited immigration led directly to the creation of the Broadway musical. And I often say the musical is an immigrant art form. Of course, it's entirely appropriate to tell that story in the form of a musical. Was this a movie from your childhood? Did you have any kind of intimate connection to that in that way? It was a movie from my childhood. I was nine years old when the movie came out. So I don't know what the exact epicenter of the target demographic 
it is, but nine-year-old boy is probably close. Nine-year-old Jewish boy who is the son of immigrants. I definitely was aware of it. It was a big famous movie when I was a kid. I think I watched it for the first time on a VHS tape in school. I went to a Jewish day school and they showed it to us. But it wasn't necessarily one of those, you know how kids will sometimes become obsessed with certain movies and watch them over and over until the tape breaks or something. It wasn't one of those for me, but it did sort of loom large as this like cultural artifact and somewhere out there was a huge song and there are no cats in America and the image of Fievel and his hat and like the whole story. And then it was also part of the sort of Don Bluth, you know, universe of animated films that also included The Secret of Nim and like the Dragon Slayer, Laserdisc games. There was this sort of offshoot. He'd broken away from Disney to do stuff that was maybe a little bit darker, actually, among other things. So for all those reasons, yeah, I definitely had this like electricity when they called me or emailed me and said Children's Theater Company had gotten the rights and would I be interested in working on it? I was like, immediately, yes. And then thought about it more in my adult self than said yes later in a more rational way. <laughs> so you mentioned your own family's immigrant story. What is that immigrant story? American Tale is set in the 1880s, and that is not the wave of immigration that my family came here. My mom is, well, technically they're both Israeli immigrants. My mom was born and raised in Israel and left after marrying my dad in the mid-60s and came first to Providence, Rhode Island, because he was starting his graduate studies at Brown and she enrolled there as an undergrad and then ended up in Berkeley, which is where he got a job as an academic. My dad was born in Israel, then left when he was a kid, when he was eight years old. His stepfather ran a shipping company and for business reasons, they ended up in Italy and then England. And he only returned to Israel years later for his mandatory army service, which is where he met my mom. So they came here in their early 20s, which would have been in the late 60s, early 70s. It's funny because something that's your experience, it's just the default. You don't experience it as unusual or otherness when you're a kid. I remember the day. I remember going with them to City Hall in San Francisco. I think it was in the mid 80s when they became citizens. Like I remember I I was there with them when they got their American citizenship. I forget if that means I'm a first generation or second generation. Who's the first generation that's born here? But that's my story. I think second, but I'm not entirely positive about that. I think that's right. Had their parents or grandparents moved from Europe to Israel? Yeah. On my father's side, they were German and left almost too late, although manifestly just early enough because they got Mm -hmm. out. And on my mother's side, Polish. Polish and Austrian. So yeah, all right in the heart of places you needed to get out of. Even before, I mean, my mother's mother's family came from Poland in the 20s. Right. So not with the same urgency of people who left, say, in the late 30s or early 40s, but it's it wasn't great, you know, for Jews in Poland in the 20s. So growing up in this Jewish family, there's a tremendous Jewish proclivity for a show business. Was that something yeah. you felt growing up? Not consciously, although years later, I learned that on my father's side, the family had run a talent agency for like actors and singers and musicians in Berlin or in Germany in the 20s and so on. It was in the blood. And my dad, although he didn't become a performer or anything, at Berkeley, he was, among other things, a film professor. He taught Italian studies as well, but he taught film studies and Italian film and filmmaking towards the end of his career before he retired. And they were theater goers, my parents, like they took me Mm -hmm. to plays. There was a serious culture and, you know, the arts and stuff were taken seriously and as opposed to dismissed in my family. And I'm sure that was important. 
And how did you particularly fall in love with theater? What happened to cause that? I feel like there were a few phases to it. When I was really young, there was this group called the Bay Area Youth Theater. I think it still exists. And uh, you grew up in Berkeley, is that I correct? I grew up in Berkeley, yeah, in the yeah. East Bay. And so first my older sister did some plays at Bay Area Youth Theater, and I remember seeing her in Bye Bye Birdie and Annie and Fiddler. And then I was in a play there, some like adaptation of some German folk tales. I mean, I remember how fun that was. Like for a lot of people when they do it first when they were a kid, it's the social aspect. You create mm-hmm. like really intense like family with these interesting people, many of whom are very funny and charismatic. And then you have this great experience together where people clap for you. And so I think that's the first drug, right? That's the first hit of the drug. Uh, and then I didn't really do theater much in high school or anything. I was more like a newspaper nerd. I was on the school paper. But towards the end of high school, I started seeing more plays at the really good theater in the Bay Area, Berkeley Rep, ACT in San Francisco. So that was one thing that did it. You know, I got into like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead and Arcadia and then Angels in America was really big at the time. It had just run on Broadway and was coming back to the Bay Area. This is like the mid 90s. So I saw it at, at ACT. So all of that. And then there were some guys at Berkeley High School who were a little bit older than me who were doing these weird rock operas that they wrote themselves in like the basement of a pizza place in this little black box theater down there. So there were all these like things Things that made theater seem cool to me. Little did mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> and, uh, I was like, well, theater is what all the coolest and most interesting people do. And so I started trying to write plays. And then I went to college and I went to undergrad at Yale. I didn't do the drama school. Because when I say I went to Yale, people say, oh, you went to the drama school. I did not. I did Yale college. But undergrad theater there is also really good. I mean, it's a mm-hmm. huge, a huge scene with people like doing plays all the time. So it became sort of my main extracurricular activity in college. And by the time I graduated, I was... I was sunk. I did. I know. I know <laughs> and why playwriting? Because you were naturally a writer as well, and the two things came together? Or? I think so. I mean, I liked acting too. I acted in college, and then I did like sketch and improv with a group of friends from college when we first moved to New York for like two or three years. And I enjoyed performing. It's one of the reasons I like teaching. It sort of gets the performance mm-hmm. in taken care of. I was interested in being a writer from much, much earlier, like when I was a kid, when I was 10 or 11. I was a big reader, and I wrote a lot of fantasy and sci-fi novels. And I was like, I'm going to write fantasy novels. That's what I want to do. So deciding I wanted to try writing plays was sort of an outgrowth of wanting to write and make things in general, which even now, all these decades later, I feel like I'm still on the journey of understanding what it is that makes me want to write. It's like a feeling you get from the world and from experiences that you somehow want to capture. But the process of capturing it is a kind of work that is satisfying in its own way, but unrelated to the feeling. But you're trying to do it in the right way. Where you give so there's this, this weird paradox of like the feelings that made you want to write are not the feelings you have while writing, although you can have other good feelings while writing. So it was that. It was that feeling and oh, I'll write short stories, whatever. And then that met my new interest in theater and I started writing plays and I just, you know, sort of followed the boulder as it rolled down the hill, I guess. And interestingly, playwriting is a very specific form of writing because now you don't get to do it alone in your own room you have to now collaborate with other people and you have to write, I think, more specifically for an audience than a novelist has to. I mean, yeah, the longer I do it and maybe the more deeply that I understand the form, the less different it seems to me, the less different all forms seem to me, because Mm -hmm. even a novel, if it's going to keep you interested, you have easier access to someone's subjective internal experience in a novel. 
Mm-hmm. But you're still building it primarily out of events, out of scenes rendered one way or another and the choices that the characters are making and an understanding of their psychology as they do so. But yeah, on a practical level, it's less lonely to do theater. And sometimes that makes you envious of, oh, the intimate one-to-one relationship that a novelist has where you're like, I wrote this and this is what the reader reads. And right. so it's done. And all of these intermediary steps you have to go through to get it to the theater. On the other hand, that's kind of what's magical about it, you know, is it involves all these other people performing this ritual for which the script is like just this blueprint and different mm-hmm. productions can do it different ways. And then the process of making it inevitably brings you into contact with groups of people. So that's useful, especially as you get older and your life is like less <laughs> social all the time for other reasons. And what you want to do on a weekend is sort of stay in and read. <laughs> like having a job. That brings you into contact with other humans is useful. Absolutely. And the process that you're about to go through in Minneapolis is now you have to sit there and experience the audience's reaction to your show, hopefully very positive, but in some cases, of course, it won't be, which a novelist doesn't have to do. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you mean that a novelist doesn't have to sit there while someone's reading the book and watch their negative reaction to it. Exactly. And see them (laughs) lose interest or, you know, cough or do the things that audiences do? It's really intense. I think I used to be in some kind of denial about just how intense it is. Like, oh yeah, it's fine. The audience is watching it. You learn a lot, but it's really hard. It's really, I can't speak for other writers in theater, but sitting physically in the room while the thing is going and the audience is watching it is incredibly intense. It feels very vulnerable because the collective group mind of an audience is very powerful and very smart. Like an individual audience member A or B might not get this joke or this reference, but the collective group mind of the audience misses nothing. Anything that's boring, any joke that's not properly crafted, something about that collective will tell you the truth about it. And it might be the writing, it might be the execution, like that's the kind of thing you have to figure out. But the group mind's visceral experience of what they're watching doesn't lie. And so the question of what to do about that is case by case. So it's a, it's an incredibly useful tool to sit there in the audience, but it, it can be really hard and not to get defensive and then to keep your ego out of it and try to be sort of clinical about the information you're getting and what to do about it. I find it like one concrete thing I can say is I find it hard to sit in the middle of the audience. Like it is much, much easier if I'm standing at the very back, you know, and I don't feel the judgment of the piece flowing through me from behind towards the stage. I can sort of, you know, have a slight distance from the whole thing. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. And then your instincts, I guess, get more honed over time. Like at a certain point, you can sort of just listen to a read through of the piece with no audience and anticipate how it will feel for an audience. But it's like you need to hear the thing at the very least actually being done all the way through to get a sense of the shape. It's so amazing that first time that you hear it with any people in the room at all, you experience it differently than even if you could have read it a thousand times and not have the same experience as when there's other people in the room with you. So you could have been wrestling over like, should it be this joke or that joke? Or should he make this choice or that choice on your own for months? Oh, I can see arguments either way. I don't know which is better. And then before you even get there in the script, you know, you're a page away, but because there's an audience watching it, you're like, oh, I know what, I see which one is right. 
and maybe it's neither. <laughs> but um, but you see, it just tells you. It's amazing. Yeah. Over my career, I've done a lot of new musicals. When I was at the Fifth Avenue Theater as the producing artistic director, we did 19 new musicals during that period wow, in yeah. full productions. What you're saying is so important because I think the people who really succeed in doing what you're trying to do are the ones who are able to get past the difficulty of that because it is hard. It is really painful to sit in that room and experience it and then be able to learn from it and then be able to take action. And that sort of separates people who succeed and the people who don't succeed, I believe. Again, I can only speak for myself. There's a huge impulse to rationalize, not just because you're in love with what's already there. You may not be, but because the idea that it might be really a problem and that you don't yet know how to fix it is too scary. And mm -hmm. also it might be too late. Like once you're in previews, it's often too late to fix something for that production, which is why I've also tried to get better at using early readings and workshops as aggressively mm -hmm. as possible. And it's it's funny, this might be useful for your listeners that like a trick I had to get better at, and presumably I'm not alone, is that it used to be that we, you, know, you finish a draft of something, you're so excited, you're so proud, among other things, but you're like, I finished something, this is good, finally, this is the one that's perfect. And you do that first reading or that first workshop and you start to see problems and holes and things that don't work. I would have this emotional reaction of like, well, let me not panic yet. Let me not decide anything yet. Because maybe it does work. I, the actor was doing it wrong, whatever. But actually that's a huge opportunity because it's so early because it's just some reading in your house or in your agent's office or whatever, I still have to like play this mental game. The habit I tried to create was if there's no production scheduled or if the production doesn't go into rehearsal for a year, I have that resistance or that backpedaling. I don't want to notice that that's a problem. Mm -hmm. so it's like, no, no, no. Thank God. Like, thank God I noticed now when the stakes are so low. Like we just did a one day reading. I can go home, think about this, and then no one's gonna hear this aloud again, ever, if I don't want, <laughs> or at least nothing scheduled for six months or whatever. So like to be relieved that you noticed as early as possible as a way of not being sort of I don't know, defensive or, or, or wasting that time. But also, I don't know, it's tricky because like I've also gone through phases of my career where I felt I was too receptive mm -hmm. to changes or you know other people's notes that didn't make sense to me and then stop trusting my own instincts. And that's also a mistake. So it's really about cultivating a very strong gut feeling of rightness versus not rightness of like how true the piece is being to itself and, really, and then really listening to that. I think that's so smart because the specific notes you get from people are usually wrong. Yeah. Although they're usually identifying a point in the play that has a problem. I agree exactly. What I tell students is that people are almost always right about when they're bored or confused, and they're almost always wrong about what you should do about it. It's my experience as well. Let me tell you about Petah Tikva. Such a city, everybody loves it. Lots of fun, lots of art, lots of culture. That's Petah Tikva with a P. Where you are, this is not Petah Tikva. Such a city, nobody knows it. Not a fun, not a art, not a culture. This is Petah Tikva with a B. Like it boring, like it barren, like it bullshit, like it bland. Like it basically bleak and beige and blah, blah, blah. Welcome to Only desert, the town of Beth Hatikva. See apartments. Gaze upon my cafe. 
While you're here, be sure to go back and forth between my cafe and the apartments. So much to explore. Many playwrights, historically, and less so today, I think, there's a great divide between writing a play and writing a musical. And sometimes the twain are unlikely to meet in people's sort of idea of what they should do with their career. You have done both. You write plays, you write musicals. You're probably most well-known now for winning the Tony Award for a musical, which may or may not be how you envision things would go in your career. But how do you approach those two tasks differently? Are they inherently different? And do you have a preference for one or the other? First of all, I really appreciate the way you asked the question. And then it acknowledges the very thing that you're sort of outlining there, that like the core of my identity of how I see myself, which you know, has nothing to do with how things may appear externally or what I'm best known for is as a playwright. And even on a more basic level, someone who just like generates my own original stories in whatever form, that's how I see myself. But yeah, you're not in control of what becomes big and makes a splash and what doesn't. And to some extent, I feel like one of the lessons for me of the success of the band's visit, because it did, certainly in theater, became the most widely seen and well-known thing I'd ever done, was that there was something in the egolessness of of that process that was made possible by it being an adaptation, by it being a collaboration, that I thought, okay, well, it would probably behoove me to bring this spirit back to the stuff I'm doing on my own when I do stuff on my own again. But your question was, how do I approach them differently? In some ways, not differently, because in every case, what matters is story, story and character, and like how those two things are causing each other. And so you always have to work out that math. At some point, sometimes it comes to you in this big chunk. Sometimes you're adapting something so it's there. Sometimes you're finding it. So it's just a question of what your tools are and how many other people you're doing that with. And so the big difference on a musical is that I don't write music. You know, I'm not one of those rare birds who can do everything on their own on a musical. At the very least, there's a composer. They may also be doing the lyrics on their own. I may be doing the lyrics with them, but I'm still not doing all of the lyrics. Often on a musical, a director is involved much earlier. A producer might be involved much earlier, even if they're sort of distantly keeping hands off from the creatives. They never completely do that. The choreographer, you know, there, there are all of these different minds that may make up the creative team on a musical in a way where if it's your play, it's just you. Mm -hmm. um, so the difference of the approach has mostly to do almost with social fluidity and like politics and interpersonal dynamics. Like if I want to get my idea into my own play, there's nothing to navigate. I just put it in. If I want to get my idea into a musical and there's resistance from some of these other people, then there's a whole series of delicate moves that have to take place. Like, first of all, how do I make the case for what I want to do and get us to try it? Or how do I entertain the possibility that I'm wrong? Like, how much do I trust my collaborators and their instincts? So that's the biggest difference. And it's double-edged because, you know, if you work with people who are very good at what they do and very smart, there's a huge benefit to it because when they seem very sure of something, you can trust it. And then when you're very sure, hopefully they trust you. So that's the biggest difference. It's just harder. It's just harder to make changes. I mean, you know, from Fifth Avenue, like I've said this in other interviews, but it's so true that like if I want to make a change on my play and we're in previews and I see something Tuesday night, and I'm like, oh, that chunk of that scene doesn't work. Wednesday morning, I rewrite it. Wednesday afternoon, the actors rehearse it. Wednesday night, it's on stage. 
if I'm previous for a musical and I see something I don't like Tuesday night, Wednesday morning I can rewrite it. And then I'm going to show up at <laughs> rehearsal and be told, okay, but we're restaging a number today and we have to redo the lights for the finale on Thursday. And then we don't have rehearsal Friday. So you can actually put your rewrite in next Tuesday. By which point I'll have seen seven more things I want to change. So I think people who don't actually do it from the inside overestimate what percentage of the show you can actually change in even a month of previews, let alone a week or two weeks, which is what most things have if they're not big commercial ventures. Which, as you said, is why it's so important to make as many of those changes prior to that as you yeah. possibly can. Get it yeah. as far along. Don't wait. I've had so many people say to me, well, I want to see it in front of an audience. It's like, well, okay, but then you're choices are going to be really limited about what yeah, you yeah. do. Pick a sandhill of your choosing. Take some bricks that no one's using. Build some buildings, put some Jews in. Then blah, blah, blah. Don't go away. Edomar Moses and I will be back right after this quick break. Lucky you, you are found. Welcome to nowhere. With a B. Welcome to Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon, with no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. You talked about the director when you said uh, with a play, it's all you. You didn't mention the director there. And I actually think that's very telling because the role of a director in a play is somewhat different than a musical. Not that a director isn't crucial to a play, but the director of a musical is more in charge of all the elements because someone has to be, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Someone has to sort of be stitching all of that together. It's like theater is actually, even plays are actually deceptively closer to music than they are to something like the novel. Even a very naturalistic play that seems intentionally like mundane and static in like a Chekhovian way 
there's a music to that. It might be a music that has a ton of silence, but there's a music to it, sort yeah. of meticulously scoring it. But a musical is like a piece of machinery. The director needs to be operating that machine or it's like an ocean liner and the director's piloting the ship and you don't want it to hit any icebergs. Yeah. And on a play, I mean, it depends. Different playwrights and directors work together differently. There's devised theater that tends to be maybe more like a musical in certain ways. But yeah, the director's not generally in the room when I'm writing a new play. I Usually I don't even know who the director is unless it was commissioned for me to write for a particular director, which has never happened to me. Yeah. You're just writing it. You might have people who are frequent collaborators and you're already thinking, oh, so-and-so would be good for this. And I've also gotten in the habit of when I do a first, first reading of something, I don't even have a director because what's to direct? I just want to hear it around the table and I just invite actors to a room and we do it. But it's always an important question of like, oh, who might be right for this? And is it someone I've worked with before and or someone new to me who I want to work with? Yeah, they aren't involved. And musicals are almost always adaptations of something. I always say it's because it's really, really hard to write an original story and it's really, really hard to make a musical and you put those two things together, you're probably going to fail because you've got two impossible tasks combined together. The band's visit was an adaptation of a film and so is an American tale. But here you have this sort of added challenge of it being an animated movie. Talk a little bit about how did you approach bringing that to the stage? There's a a couple of ways. There's this particular magic to animation that I think wisely we decided not to compete with but rather to ask ourselves, what are the equivalent forms of magic that theater is good at? So you can't sort of do anything you want or have action sequences in the way that you can in a cartoon, but you can play with scale in design of set and props in ways that are really fun and tell you that these are, you know, mice and they're tiny. And so it's just giant human objects, you know, around them. You can do fun things with costumes to suggest animals in like a theatrical way, mostly mice, but there's also cats and cockroaches. And then the cats are so much larger than the mice. How do you handle that scale? You know, and so we're using puppetry. You just sort of ask yourself, like, what is theater good at? What would we do if there were no movie and we were just telling a story about mice in New York in the 1880s and their nemesis cats? What would we do? What are the theatrical things we would do? So that's one answer. The other thing is that I don't know if you've watched the movie again recently. I did watch some clips in preparation for this, but I haven't seen the movie, I don't think, since it came out. There are things that hold up extremely well about it. The initial setup is really great. It's very moving at the end. All of the characters and situations are, like, really interesting. But through the middle, first of all, two things. First of all, the movie only has three or four songs, which Mm -hmm. is not enough for a full stage musical. We didn't even know if we were going to use all of them when we started adapting. In the end, we used almost all of them. I think we've kept three of the four. But that still meant we had to write, you know, seven, eight, nine new songs. So that means you need the dramaturgical territory to earn those songs, some of which is there. There seems like there's these moments in the movie where, oh, there could be a song there and let's just build it out. But in other cases, the story wanted to be filled out in the middle a little bit. The thing I came to respect enormously, even about the parts of the movie that feel a little bit thin to me, are its basic structure. Like where he goes next, who he encounters, how those different things weave. I ended up not deviating from that much at all because anytime I did, it was like, well, actually this feels wrong, not because it's unlike the movie, but because the movie got something right. But there's a way that it moves very quickly through some of its middle beats. Oh, we go to Tammany Hall and we decide instantly to do this. It felt like there was more to be mine in terms of the divisions among the mice before they come together to face off the cats. And then also like with his family, we see them. Fievel gets separated from his family, spends the rest of the story trying to find his way back to them. And we see them sort of crisscrossing through certain scenes. 
but we sort of felt that there was a little bit more to mine there in terms of what are their beats through the middle of the story. Maybe there's a little arc for his little sister who wonders where her brother has gone. So it wasn't much. It was similar to Van's visit in that the additions I made to that story were also like gestures that were begun by the movie and then extending them like a little bit. I think because of the difference between how full a story has to be to hold the stage as opposed to holding the film, because you're losing the visual storytelling elements and the power of the camera to direct the audience's experience. So it was that. It was like we added a bunch of songs and kind of filled out the middle of the story a little bit in a way that creates a balance that feels stage worthy, I guess. So you wrote the lyrics for the new songs. I co-wrote them with the composers, with Alan and Mike, yeah. And was this your first time writing lyrics? No. My very first musical before Band's Visit and before Fortress of Solitude was a satire about reality television called Nobody Loves You. I wrote that with Gabby Alter, and he did the music, and I did book, and we did the lyrics together. And Gabby and I wrote a song that we co-wrote lyrics for, for something else, for like a Disney. They have a series of movies about the adventures of Tinkerbell, the sort of straight-to-video Tinkerbell movies, and we wrote a song for that. I've done lyrics, usually with Gabby, but not always. I've done co-lyrics on a bunch of things, yeah. And do you enjoy lyric writing? I love it. I love it, yeah. Many of the best lyricists hate, or at least proclaim to hate lyric writing, because it's so damn hard to do. It's hard, and I may benefit from the fact that I've never done it alone, and I Mm -hmm. don't get to do it that often. But I love it for the same reason I love crossword puzzles, Mm -hmm. which is that it is so hard in writing generally. There's a great documentary, maybe you've seen it called The Five Obstructions, in which I think it's Lars von Trier tracks down an older filmmaking mentor of his who's sort of stopped making movies and fallen into a depression. And he jostles the guy out of his depression by challenging him to remake one of his own short films five times, each time with a different set of obstructions. And the one that freaks the guy out, and they're crazy. You have to make it in Mexico and every shot can last no longer than seven frames. And like, they're all insane. But then he says, it's like the fourth one or something. He says, your obstruction on this one is total creative freedom. And you can see the guy get kind of paralyzed. And they show you all of them over the course of the documentary. And it's the worst one because with no constraints, it's actually really hard to be smart and creative. So the constraints of lyric writing are huge. If you can embrace that, there's a huge freedom in it. The way it works best for me is to decide along with the composer what the song's about, like what the hook is basically, and then a general sense of the arc of it. So the first verse is about this, and then we land the hook, and then the movement goes this way. Then I have the composer write like a musical bed, just sort of humming. So I know the rhythm of how the syllables have to go. And then the process of writing the first draft of lyrics is filling in that pattern. And I find that so satisfying in a way that my normal writing, it's just, it's engrossing at a level that nothing else is. Like I'll realize two hours have gone by while I was staring at this one thing. It's like solving a puzzle. And I think if you Mm -hmm. believe, which I do, in like the infinite malleability of language, certainly English. I mean, English is such a weird language, which is actually a really a boon to lyric writers because it has words from everywhere. You can always solve the problem. If you feel like a lyric isn't good enough, I've never had the experience of like not being able to beat it. Like a lyric I thought was weak. Yeah, so I love it. Somebody should do a thesis on the cross between crossword puzzles and lyric writing. You are not alone in having those two affinities. That seems to be that things go together. I think they do. Yeah. Of course, a story about immigration could not be more timely, unfortunately. I think looking back through a historical lens is often the best way or one of the best ways to see what's happening in our own time. What do you think the contemporary resonance of this story is? It's interesting because there's a couple 
couple answers to that. If you watch the movie, and we've teased this out even a little more, I would say, one of the questions that it leaves you with is, what are the cats a metaphor for, right? Mm -hmm. Because in Russia, they're the Cossacks. Won't it be nice when we get to America? In America, there are no cats. But back home in Mother Russia, uh, our family was traveling through the snow to Minsk. Suddenly, Papa saw those huge paw prints. When I heard him screaming, I fainted dead away. And I woke up an orphan. You hear them being compared to the mafia by the Italian immigrant mice. You think that things were bad in Russia? You should see things in my country. <laughs> the times were hard in Sicily. We had no provolone. The Don, he was a tabby with a taste for my brother Tony. When the mama went to plead for him, the Don said he would see her. We found her rosary underground. Poor mamma mia. But, but there are no cats in to something else by the Irish immigrant mice. And then there they are in New York. And in New York, they're exemplified by the scheme to earn money off the mice from their labor, which isn't like enormously well explicated in the movie. I think we've managed to make it a little bit clearer what's actually going on. But it seems like in America, the cats are a metaphor for the pitfalls of capitalism. And that more broadly, the cats are a metaphor for the way that oppression and exploitation and the abuse of power just changes forms to fit into whatever mold allows it to thrive in whatever society. When they come over on the boat and they say there are no cats in America, they're wrong. Cats are just doing something else in America than they are in Russia. So I think one way the story just inherently engages with political realities is like, first of all, at a much later stage of capitalism than they were in the 1880s, but also than they were in the 1980s when the movie came out, right? Which is mm -hmm. in the middle the Reagan era, when all of the regulations that are still gone for the most part were being eliminated, progressive taxation on the wealthy and the ultra wealthy and corporations was starting to disappear. And it was controversial at the time, like the Overton window on this has moved so far that things that a moderate Republican would have wholeheartedly supported in 1986 are now like seen as some sort of extreme Bernie Sanders-ish pipe dream. Right. Socialism gone wild. Exactly. But it, when it's like, it's not even close. It's not anywhere close to socialism. It's not, exactly. it's not a neighborhood of socialism. But in any case, so the movie is already gesturing towards this stuff in the middle of the sort of height of Reaganism. And so now here we are in late stage capitalism telling the same story. And we didn't change it. We're just telling the same story that the movie did. But I think the resonance of it, I think, is a little bit sharper now, simply because the conversation has shifted so much around income inequality and all 
all this stuff in the last few years. So that's the class component. And then there's the racial component and the ethnic component and the country of origin component, maybe you would call it, because it's that's broader and more accurate. Where in the movie, you know, the Mouskowitzes are explicitly Russian Jews and you have Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants and Gussie Mausheimer, I think, is supposed to be a descendant of German immigrants. So you have some cross-section and we've preserved all of that and added some more for the stage piece. And so I think the way it speaks to now is it's just a reminder of this ironic cycle where groups show up here, they're the outsider, they're the newcomer, they're not welcomed in the way that they might have hoped. They carve one way or another their place here, they figure out how to thrive and survive and remain. And then in this ironic and kind of sad way, we always have this tendency to then protect what's ours and be fearful of the next wave of newcomers. Even though whether you're religious or just a secular humanist, like every sort of ethical mandate in human history is like, no, pay it forward by welcoming them in the way you wish you had been. And so it feels like that's also encoded into the movie. I mean, there's a funny runner in the movie that we've kept, as we've kept most things, where the Statue of Liberty is being built by a French pigeon named Henri. Oh, this is America, the place to find hope. If you give up, you will never find your family. So... Never say never. Say never say never, whatever you do. Never say never, my friend. Toi. If you believe that your dreams will come true, they'll come true in the end. <laughs> Keep up your courage, don't ever despair. Take heart and then come to ten. Hope for the best, work for the rest, and never say never again. And at the end of the movie, it's finally completed. And that always has felt to me like the thing that the Statue of Liberty represents is constantly under construction, so to speak, and remains incomplete. The hope that it will someday be complete and the process of continuing to build it is what should drive us, I guess. There's a metaphor for America, a good idea under construction and not done. Yeah, exactly. When they were creating this movie, was there any relationship between the graphic novel Mouse and the idea of this particular story? There is a story about the two coming out at around the same time that may be apocryphal that I've heard. And the story I've heard (laughs) is that they were two completely independent projects come up with completely independently. Mouse, for people who may not know, is Arch Spiegelman's graphic novel about his father's experience in the Holocaust, in which the Jews are depicted as mice and the Nazis are depicted as cats. The Americans are like friendly dogs with floppy ears and the French are frogs. It's a whole thing. But he was making that, writing that at the same time as Amblin and Universal were making American Tale and that Arch Spiegelman heard that a movie was coming out with Jewish mice. That's why Mouse was originally published in two separate volumes because he wasn't done with the second half. So he published the first half right away so that he couldn't be accused of having stolen from American Tale, which he didn't. And ultimately, if you see them both, it's not that in American Tale, the Jews are mice, like everyone is mice. <laughs> so like, <Right. laughs> there is a family of Jewish mice, as are, you know, any other, you know, New York 
resident of this world, they're all mice, pretty much. So, all the immigrants, you're mice in that story, exactly. basically. Yeah. 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 But it's interesting because the way that certain creative ideas tend to crop up in groups, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> the collective unconscious brings yeah. it out at the same time. Yeah. The show is going to debut at the Minneapolis Children's Theater. But yeah. I'm assuming from the way you've talked about the show and the colleagues that you have working on it with, this is not a show just for kids. No, it's not a show just for kids. It's a show for everyone, partly because if you're my age and people my age have kids who are the age that the show is on one level directed at, but they also remember it from when they were kids, you have this sort of double generational appeal, hopefully, right? The nostalgia factor and then bring your own kids. But like all the best stuff in the YA space or movies that are directed at kids or theater that is, it doesn't mean it's dumbed down. It just means it lives in a space that's kind of like a fable. I mean, look, adult audiences don't like to be bored or, or preached at or confused either, right? So the idea that you only have to be careful of that with a, a young audience isn't true, but the bar is higher. And actually one of the things that's been great about working at CTC is Peter Brosius and the other people who work there do this all the time. And I'm newer to like writing something where a big percentage of the audience is going to be kids. And they have a really good antenna for when the kids are going to start fidgeting in their seats. And what I would say, it's not that different from my antenna about when any audience would fidget in their seats, just a little bit more unforgiving, you know, like, like a little bit more exacting. When the kids yeah. are bored, there'll be no doubt about it. You know, we do run throughs of the show and I cry at the end. So I, it's working on me. So hopefully it'll work out <laughs> in their 40s or, or 80s. Edamar Moses, it's been wonderful to talk to you about your new musical an American Tale, which is going to debut at the Minneapolis Children's Theater at the end of April. That's right. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thanks for the talk. So happy to have you. Thanks so much. Here's the information about how you can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for this podcast. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. That's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. And when night wind starts to sing a lonesome lullaby It helps to think we're sleeping underneath the same big sky Somewhere out there If love can see us through Then we'll be together
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.